Hi, everyone, and welcome to this panel, which is entitled Consumer Loyalties Impacted by Fair Data Strategies and Trust in Health Innovation. Uh, to start this panel off, I'm going to turn to each one of my panelists and allow them to introduce themselves and say a little bit about what they do in their daily lives that, that, that's relevant to the topic of this panel. Uh, and I'll start with uh, Dan Perlman. Good afternoon, uh, Dan Brillman, co-founder and CEO of Unite Us. Um, we are a, a national technology platform connecting health and social service providers across the country. Um, to give a bit of background, we've been around for about nine years, uh, about 800 people and serving over 43 states um, in, the, in the United States, and really started out around addressing people's uh, health and social needs in a coordinated fashion. And so at a high level, this is about addressing health versus just healthcare. Um, and as people know the term of social determinants of health, the majority of your health is determined outside of the four walls of your, of your doctor's visits or in the hospital. And uh, many states and, and payers and providers and governments are, are trying to address uh, care in the community, closer to people's home uh, that improve their overall health. And so our infrastructure, our software and our uh, analytics approach around how we actually get organizations from healthcare, government, and social services to actually coordinate services together in a secure fashion so that we create a seamless experience for people uh, that have traditionally had to access and navigate all these different services individually. Each story uh, is a new story every time they try to go to a service and no one can know what happens to that client when they leave the four walls. Uh, so the infrastructure we've been building across um, the country for the, for the last nine years really is the interconnectivity and the secure ecosystem allowing these organizations who never really communicated with each other securely from hospitals to uh, uh, housing organizations, to employment agencies, to substance use clinics in a secure way and ensure that that client receives the services they need. Uh, where we're going as a, as a company that's uh, been around for a long time and as the ecosystem uh, continues to mature in the sense of uh, focusing on inequities in communities is really around shifting the, the incentives and, and the alignment of, of the flow of funds between uh, the systems, um, the governments to community-based organizations that truly improve health um, and reduce costs. And so becoming that, that facilitation between those organizations is very uh, B2B in a sense, but ultimately what this is about is providing consumers the best and seamless experience to address the needs that they have when they need them close to their homes and in their communities. So thank you for having me. That's great. No, lots to talk about on this panel, that's for sure. Um, Yael, can you go next? Sure. So uh, my name is Yael Osaski, Deputy Director at the Consumer Choice Center. So we're a consumer advocacy group a bunch of us millennial activists who are very passionate about a full number of topics and really started getting involved into the policy game. Uh, so really how we started our operations is by focusing on millennial consumers, particularly those that value lifestyle freedom, innovative technology, and smart policies. So we, we basically have started uh, both in Europe and North America doing various campaigns on everything related to healthcare, uh, but also general health and science, lifestyle freedom, all of this has to do with the sharing economy, with the innovative nature of cryptocurrencies, and figuring out the best regulations that will help consumers and empower them. Uh, particularly when it comes to these topics, a lot of the stuff that we've been advocating for are very consumer-centric models. And those of us that free consumers, 
uh, to actually make their own decisions about the different types of health plans they want, the relationship that they can have with their doctor, and figuring out what the kind of bureaucracy and red tape is there so we can remove that and make it much easier for especially younger people to access healthcare services, to be able to get them you know, at the, the click on their phone, uh, they're able to set up everything online. Uh, that's sort of what we've been advocating for. And uh, all along the way, destroying red tape and uh, making sure that all of the policies, both at a state level, at a national level, and at times a global level, are actually in tune uh, with what young millennial consumers want. Uh, so we're, we're fairly active uh, in North America, but also across Europe and Latin America. I have colleagues who are, who are doing great things and working a lot of these topics in various languages. Uh, so it's great to be with everyone here on the panel. Uh, some great minds uh, gathered and uh, look forward to conversing. Great. Thanks, Yael. And Patty, how about you? Thank you, Devin. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Patty, and uh, I am the founder and CEO of Demo Consulting. We are a digital transformation advisory firm that works in the healthcare space, exclusively in the healthcare space. Most of our work is with health plans and with healthcare providers. And as everybody knows, uh, healthcare is going through a digital transformation with much of the focus being the patient facing aspects of care, whether it's access to care or whether it is care delivery. And so the work that we do with health systems is to help them figure out their roadmaps to transform themselves into a virtual care or a hybrid care model with a dominant component of uh, telehealth and uh, digital front doors and uh, consumer facing uh, experiences that are similar to those of the Amazons and Apples of the world and so on. And of course, while doing that, we also get to see the challenges that they face, whether it's using technology in a seamless way, whether it is designing the experiences, using data and analytics at the back end and a whole host of other things. And the challenges, of course, are very unique to healthcare and looking forward to unpacking some of that as a part of this conversation. Great. Thanks, Patty. And, I, and I'm realizing that I didn't, I didn't actually give much of an introduction of, as to who I am. I was so excited to get this panel started. Um, I um, left a position in the HIPAA office of the federal government to help found a company called Citizen which has created a platform that enables patients, and we're focusing in particular on cancer patients and those with rare neurological disorders to use their right under the law to get all their health information under their control, all of their medical records so that they can then seek the best possible care for themselves, share information with a caregiver who's helping them through their, through their journey, uh, see if they connect uh, to a clinical trial, see if they're eligible, um, and even to contribute their data for research purposes. So, um, so there's, there's, I think, some common threads uh, uh, amongst all of us, but not, we're not doing it all the same things, um, which should make for a very interesting discussion. Uh, one thing I wanted to start with is why, you know, for so long, healthcare has sort of been in this model, and maybe still is to some degree, where you know physicians, hospitals, and health plans and their financial models sort of dictate the way care is delivered, the way access happens, and particularly access to data. 
some of some of what we're talking about here is a, is a bit disruptive of some of that traditional model. So what might be some of the advantages to, for example, putting data in the hands of consumers, to having policies that give consumers more choice, to treating people as whole persons with social needs as well as healthcare needs? What, what do we think some of those um, advantages are? And I, we're not necessarily assigning these questions, but to avoid us sort of tripping all over each other, um, um, I'll start with you, Dan, if that's okay. Yeah, I think it starts with not one organization, not one physician can solve the problems and the needs of people. Um, and in 2021, we consume information and services in centralized way in almost anything other than healthcare um, or health services or social services together with healthcare. Uh, and, you know, I, I think going back to when it comes to people's needs and services that are required, uh, not one organization can do it alone. And so the advantages are you got to play to everyone's strengths and provide an ecosystem that allows them to continue doing their job, but not, but, you know, there's always change management when you're disrupting, right? And you're creating kind of generational change, and that's fine. But you do have to fit into the mold of their workflow, right? You can't totally flip if their incentives haven't totally flipped yet, right? You have to ease that burden for them to participate in something, right? Especially when we're talking about the supply side that is allowing the consumers to consume that service a lot in, in a different way than they have before. And so the advantages are everyone is willing to do it because I think everyone knows the problem. They just don't know what their own solution looks like um, because they have to build it on them, their own, right? Which creates more and more silos. So I think we're at a time in 2021 where everyone knows that they shouldn't recreate the wheel at this point um, because it will just slow them down or put actually slow themselves down of accomplishing their own business objectives. And, and that's why disruptors and, and technology um, and advocates at the policy level and at, at the technological level to implement something are, are actually making a change because people are willing to adopt that a lot quicker than they were before. Yeah, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, you know, I that think, means uh, I'm going to call on you. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, busted. Uh, I, yeah, I think that that's definitely one thing. One thing I've I've noticed in meeting with you know legislators and and some you know entrepreneurs who are looking at this space is just how much consumers want to have access to that data and the need for it to be portable. And that's something that sort of traditional health systems has been very hard. It's been this Manila folder you know, that has all this illegible scribbles in it, you know, things that probably don't translate between state to state. But now we actually do have great apps that allow us to connect that information and, you know, databases that we can use and there's strong encryption in between them. And that's something that I think many of us would like to have a lot more. Uh, there's so many services, you know, having lived both in Europe and the United States, I'm seeing the difference as well between what information is available uh, to you as the consumer what you're able to actually bring to another health institution, whether it be uh, some kind of you know physical therapy services or whether it be your dentist. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you would like to be able to transfer, uh, but oftentimes we don't know how or we have to rely upon the institutions rather than having that information ourselves. And I'm, I'm more of that kind of revolution. And we have it every day with personal finance. There's all these great apps you know, that are connecting that open data from our banks and our credit cards, and we just don't necessarily have that next level yet of how we can do it with healthcare. There, there's been a lot of great promises. Uh, there's definitely a lot of great projects out there coming out of Silicon Valley, coming out of Miami that do discuss this and perhaps offer some ways of doing it, but we haven't seen that next level approach. Something that is the go-to 
application for booking doctors or you know for finding the appointments or finding the specialists there's a lot of them competing out there which is great because we need robust competition that's the way that we're going to find who the winner is uh, but i still think we're, we're just ready for that next step i'm really excited for it uh, i'm really excited to see what else is going to come out there you know i, I want to ask a follow-up because this is something that gets asked of me a lot which is uh, you know are consumers really interested in taking that much control of their healthcare and being the sort of Sherpas of their data around to different appointments and finding things and, and coordinating, you know, using the data to, to coordinate these services? You know, we, we know that the statistics on the use of these portals that have kind of been in existence for a couple of years now is actually pretty low particularly among healthy patients. And so I wonder whether we are, you know, I know it's part of the reason why we decided to start with really sick patients first, because they do tend to be more motivated or they have families that are more motivated, but is there, you know, are, are, are we at this sort of beginning of this wave? Is there a wave that's coming and is it a different experience or is the, is the desire to get more involved different if you're talking about millennials, for example, or um, minorities or people that come from disadvantaged groups whose access to care may not have been terribly strong to begin with. And then we're sort of encouraging them to get, get, to get even more involved. So I'm wondering what you, what you all think about that. I can take that one. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, this is a multi-layered problem for us to be really looking at. There is the aspect of uh, the consumer and whether he or she gets access to the data. The good news there is that after 10 years of uh, implementing electronic health records and not being able to access the records within the EHR systems, the CMS interoperability ruling that went into effect earlier this year actually provides an access. And there's, there are penalties for information blocking and so on. And presumably now it'll open up the spigots at least a little bit for consumers to take control of their data and then share it with anyone they like so that you can drive the kind of innovation that Yael was referring to. Now, your question, Devin, is a relevant one. How many consumers actually will take control of their data? And you, you mentioned a very stark statistic there, which is in, is in contrast to our desires, which is that if you go back and look at the number of people who have accessed their electronic health record online, it's very small as a percentage of the overall population. And now you come to all the other things. What can you do with the data? How can you take... Uh, data from EHR systems, combine it with patient-reported and patient-generated data from their own personal devices, and not to forget you know, data from health plans through their claim data and so on, and make sense of all of that. Now, you know, other sectors like e-commerce and finance have, have um, made great progress in that regard, and they have a much, much better understanding of their consumers by being able to combine the data. In healthcare, that has not happened. It's beginning to happen. Will it pick up? I'm sure it will, but uh, it's not going to be a slam dunk. It's going to take a while. There are technical hurdles. There are policy and uh, privacy-related hurdles. And then, of course, there are hurdles related to the demographics of uh, those who are you know, given access to the data and what they're going to do with it. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. But all in all, I would say that the trends are positive. I think that's what we need to take away from the current situation. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? I think uh, to, to add to that, I mean, do consumers want to have all that information? 
Uh, I think they do. Do they want to manage it? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think much of it is is far too complicated and complex. You know, who's going to know what PHP this, you know, heart rate that? I mean, it's all going to be very complicated. We've already seen the way that uh, even like the Apple Health app, the way it syncs with the Fitbit, the way it syncs with uh, sleep patterns and, you know, these smart watches. I mean, there are ways that things are being kind of transferred. And what we kind of like to follow are the statistics of it. And how can I improve? How can I do better? It's sort of gamifying uh, small portions of our health. And sort of all the studies from uh, behavioral economics tell us that there, there's so much to be gained there. So I, I do think that we want to have more access and consumers definitely do, but not necessarily managing it all and all of the systems and, and it to be too complex. I, I think there's there are a lot of innovations to come. And it really is going to come down to the health providers as well, um, so that they are actually up to date on some of these technologies that they're able to offer the, their patients. So yes, you will have that option as a consumer, but also knowing that you can go to X and Y physician or dentist or some other health professional, and they're also up to date. You can book their appointment online. You can get you know, the prescription auto-filled, all this kind of stuff. Also, the health providers have to be synced in that network. Uh, so it's not just us sort of doing the work on the back end and, and continuously adding to our, our graphics and our leaderboards. Uh, but it was great <laughs> to see that on the health provider side as well. Yeah, I have, I have found that sometimes the healthcare providers are sometimes the biggest points of resistance. And sometimes that's about um, having some concerns about patients seeing data that maybe they didn't realize that patients could see like clinical notes you know, big controversy about making those available to patients. Also, what the patient that the patient won't necessarily understand the data and and what they might do with that data. And then, of course, the privacy and security issues, which which I know we want to get to in this panel. But what what else do we think that some of the obstacles are from a from more of an operational or or technical side to really seeing some of these uh, consumer facing innovations really really take off and be useful for for people so that they want to use them? I can throw out one, and I think uh, this is something we need to recognize as a, as a unique differentiating attribute of the healthcare industry. The data landscape for healthcare consumers is highly fragmented. You might say even balkanized. And bringing it all together, making sense of it, connecting the dots, and then being able to use the data and the insights from the data to target and profile the consumers, whether it is for clinical interventions or for uh, clinical studies, like the one, the, like the use cases that you mentioned, uh, Devin, uh, for uh, you know, clinical trials and so on and so forth, or just for marketing. These are extremely challenging because there's a thicket of uh, privacy laws combined and compounded by the lack of willingness to share data across the aisle, not to mention finally the technological challenges of aggregating all of that. I think these are very unique uh, attributes of the healthcare system and they've been ossified over a period of time. And I don't mean to sound uh, downbeat about it, but we have to recognize it. And I think there's a lot of effort that is underway right now to de-bottleneck these, uh, these challenges so that we can let the data flow freely. And that's really what's going to be at the heart of transforming the healthcare system. So that's where we are right now. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And there's plenty of obstacles and that could be a whole panel in itself. I think exactly what you say. There's plenty of challenges around interoperability and everyone having their own system of record, right? Between, um, especially in our world, between medical and government systems being consumed, uh, services being consumed, and then, um, you know, traditional non-medical services, right? All different. And so, you know, for us, we had to build a system of record that, you know, traveled in the mesh between those. So, and then there's this, you know, there's other hurdles um, around what are each organization's techno technological capabilities to actually interoperate with each other. And then that's, you know, as um, as I was saying, like it's been born of new companies that help fix that problem. So that's that's a positive. Um, have they done it at scale? It's always been, for us, we've seen traditionally medical information, which has some standards. So the last one is about kind of standardization. And so standards are only as good as people adopt them. But, you know, we've seen a lot of advancements in, you know, the fire standard, which can be both in the medical community, but also translated into other information, right? If a, sta a standard can be adopted outside of the traditional use case, when people want to adopt it for a reason of actually helping people navigate their services in a more efficient way, right? Um, so the other side I'll say is government is also paying attention to this and actually helping kind of change the landscape. Um, and, and they're helping on, obviously, they, they say a couple things around, you know, the blocking rule, anti-blocking rule. Right. They actually call it like a proactive sharing rule, right? Like, and I think that that narrative is helpful that they're trying to change that narrative versus like anti-blocking versus proactive sharing, right? Which is just like a different narrative. However, they also have to solve and, but they ask the private sector and they ask folks like us around data sharing, you know, uh, you know uh, operational data sharing concerns, consent and, and privacy of things that are archaic in nature that were intended to protect the patient, but ultimately became barriers to care. You know, things like substance use information or domestic have created their own laws right, that have created barriers for everyone to actually coordinate services for on behalf of the patient. So, but making good, good, good steps in the right direction. But as everyone has said, it's going to take a while. Yeah, well, let, let's go ahead. Um, since that door has been, uh, been propped open a little bit and now kicked open even wider on the, the issue of privacy, which, you know, is really, I think, a pretty foundational one toward building the kind of, of trust environment that's going to, I think, help this whole ecosystem really take off. And part of the reason why we're kind of in this predicament of, of having privacy issues is we have these very siloed laws, at least here in the United mm -hmm. States, where you know you have HIPAA covering some entities, but not, but not usually the consumer-facing ones. They don't tend to cover the social service organizations that you work with in terms of contributing data into the medical system and then pulling data back out. Um, you know, public health agencies may be governed by their own laws, but they don't tend to be covered by HIPAA throughout their entire operations. And yet we, we know from the, from the COVID-19 pandemic that we need to be sending more data to public health. And, and, and obviously that's in the interest of consumers too. So what is it about, what are some of the obstacles that privacy concerns put in front of us and what is, how are we going to address this? And are we equipped to address this here in the United States where yeah. we have trouble enacting policy? <laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe I'll start because I think, we, you know, we've, we've been working deeply with, with, with this, exactly in this type of work. So I think the biggest barrier we've seen, and I, if I was talking two or three years ago, was doing nothing. 
right? Like I can't do it because I don't think I can do it, right? I just can't get there. And so for us, you know, we've built this interoperable system where that has the patient or the client at the center and our commitment to secure data sharing and privacy protection, consent, adherence to the highest standards. And so high trust certified, right? SOC 2, NIST, all of those things. And then 700 permissions across like how you control access, right? So you had to build the operational system to show that it actually works, right? And then it actually works at scale that we, we as a company can have covered entities, non-covered entities, coordinating services, tracking the outcomes in a, in a protected way that puts the consumer, the client at the center of it. If we did not do that, there is no way that when you know OCR puts out their RFI for requests for information around what should we change, you know we had 30 of the largest payers and governments and providers sign on with us because they've been doing it for five years with us, right? So if we did not do that and we didn't take all that seriously and and and, and build something to the highest standards which I think everyone has to do going forward, given the concerns around the sharing of information, then there's no way we're gonna tell government how to do it. Because ultimately, I think the worst case, and I, I hope government would say this itself, is we don't wanna tell everyone what to do if we don't know how it really should work, right? And so that's where we're in a different place um, you know, to, to be able to do that. So I think the, the thing we say is like, there's gotta be advocacy, right? Which we have someone on here too. There's gotta be operational, show me how this works and tell me that this would actually work in real life and do that at scale. And we can make some changes. And we're seeing a lot of progress around that given we have thousands of organizations doing this, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients in a secure way. Yeah, Yael, I, I definitely want you to chime in on this. I think one, yeah, especially in the United States, we look at the patchwork of different privacy regulations. Uh, obviously, California has the most stringent. Uh, Vermont as well has, has one that's quite stringent as well. And it is sort of a patchwork. We don't necessarily have a federal data bill, uh, at least, you know, just for general kind of entrepreneurs and businesses to follow. Uh, it's kind of sector by sector. And that does make it, you know, difficult. However, we also have to look at uh, what they've done in the European Union with the uh, GDPR, with the uh, General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, it was sort of swept in, implemented, and that actually did produce a lot of cost for a lot of people, not just monetarily, but a lot of missed opportunities. Um, you know, myself as an American who's back and forth between Europe, there's a lot of services I can't access because American companies don't want to deal with GDPR. So I can't read the newspaper. I can't access my bank account. There's all kinds of stuff like that that has made it difficult outside of the block. Obviously, when you're inside of the block, it's a bit different, uh, but there have been a lot of compliance concerns. And there are certain aspects. We definitely need it. Uh, every single day, we see data leaks. We see data hacks. Uh, we see all the bad things happening with updates on phones and things that are being transmitted by various agencies. And that's something to where, you know, there should be a focus of it nationally in the United States. It's sincerely not too difficult to do. It doesn't need to be 18,000 pages. We don't need to relive this. It doesn't need to be that complicated. There are many states that have already done it on their own. I think codifying that is simplifying that. Uh, obviously, we've already done a lot of research on that and provided examples and meeting with legislators. Uh, but another point I would add um, that I, I believe uh, Daniel is referring to is the idea of technological neutrality. And I think that's something whenever we're, we're discussing government, less entrepreneurs, is we should never have a situation where government will choose the format or the standard of how things will be run. We really have to find what has the best adoption, what are most people using, because I do find that in many other circumstances, 
uh, there are certain situations where the incentives would be pretty bad and not necessarily find the winners and the losers. And that's why having a competitive marketplace, uh, one where people are able to, to put the best data out there, the, provide the best services, and consumers choose the winners, I think will be, will be very good. It's important to have government in the room. It's important that government is there to provide the guardrails, uh, but it has to be sort of a neutral arbiter. Uh, because sincerely, having been in this game a little bit, Whoever has the most resources, whoever has the most lawyers or lobbyists, they'll write the standards according to what they believe it should be, and it will lock out a lot of uh, smaller players and, and smaller uh, opportunity seekers, unfortunately. I'll share a little bit of a personal anecdote. Uh, this past summer, my primary care provider, my PCP, experienced a data breach. 600,000 patients were impacted. I was one of them. And I just received a note in the mail asking me to go and sign up for a credit monitoring service for a year. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, what that means is that, firstly, there is a consequence for my PCP. They're going to have to incur the cost and who knows what other penalties they're going to face. And Devin, you've been on the other side, so you know very well what HIPAA breaches uh, can mean for covered entities. But then the consequences for the individuals are very significant. You suffer an immediate uh, breach of privacy and you don't know what's happened to your data. And then uh, the, if in the worst case scenario, you can experience all kinds of consequences, unintended consequences uh, that, uh, that can actually derail your life in the worst, uh, in the worst case scenarios. And so there is a reason why privacy is so sensitive in the healthcare arena, and uh, uh, you know, it's going to. I think it's got to. It's got to remain that way, and it is going to remain that way, because uh, the costs are just very high to society when uh, the safeguards are not honored by anyone, right? By malicious actors, or even by well-intentioned uh, uh, companies, and, and you know that obviously takes us to things like. AI and what, what's going on in the world of AI when you know, people's data is being used. Uh, the, this is a whole separate topic, but I think this is, going to, this is going to remain front and center for a while to come. Yeah, no, I think so too. I, um, I like Dan, I think we at Citizen have tried to do a really good job of building something that we hoped uh, our users would trust and that would sort of adhere to the sort of highest of private sector standards in terms of consent, security, et cetera. But I do worry that not everybody is going to do that. And that brings the, you know, is, is part of the reason I think why we need some federal floor below which nobody can fall because it will be you know, one person has the bad data breach, one, you know, the companies that are not doing it well, that sort of have the dollar signs in their eyes around the data and aren't necessarily building the sort of strong trust foundation around how they handle it, um, that, that impacts people's trust of, of sort of everyone in the marketplace, even, even for the good actors. So, um, so I, I would love for Congress to act. I think the multi-state um, solutions are, hard on companies to be able, you know, to be able to put out a, a solution that works 
across the board. And then I think it's also confusing for consumers, you know, not all, we might, um, you know, I might live in the state of Virginia and be protected by their new law, but I actually get my healthcare and use products outside, you know, that, that, that are not necessarily governed by those laws. So I do, I do think that that's a challenge and it does sort of um, leave me scratching my head why this effort to, to actually pass a privacy law, which has been so needed for so long and gets even more, you know, urgent as, as states continue to step into the void and make the situation even, you know, continually complicated that, that we're just not getting the kind of response um, that we need. And then of course you have the influence of companies who frankly, their use of data, they would like for it to similarly be unconstrained in the way that it is today. And they'll be fighting very hard. So I don't, I want to be as optimistic as I think my fellow panelists are that we'll get some resolution on this quickly, but I'm just, I, I, I feel like the hurdles are high. I, maybe you all disagree with me, but hope springs eternal. <laughs> no, I think we're, I think there's a lot of, uh, so Devin, I think on a positive note, I do believe that there is a lot of uh, effort underway to address the challenges of privacy address uh, at the same time, the opportunities for harnessing the data to improve healthcare outcomes. And so everything begins with an acknowledgement of the problem. And I think there is clear acknowledgement and there is effort underway, uh, whether it is at the policy level, whether it is at the private enterprise level, whether it's at the advocacy level, all of these are, there's a lot of positive forces in play to, to try to really get uh, a good deal for the consumer. And I think that's going to continue. Thank you, Patty, for shifting us back into optimistic note. I appreciate that. We seem to have, Yael, are you still there? I'm definitely here, but I'm behind the screen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, great. I just wanted to make sure you were still with us. Um, so we, we, we just spent a bunch of time talking about policy, about privacy and, and, and security and lack of sort of, um, uh, standards across uh, federal standards, but we that's probably not the only policy obstacle to adoption of some of these new innovative um, technologies. What are some other ones that that create you know stickiness um, and are potential uh, obstacles to more rapid adoption of some of these innovative models? I, I'll tell, I'll pick one. I think uh, I think there's a big uh, there's a big concern around. Uh, digital divides that uh, we need to address. And, and so uh, the good news is that there is acknowledgement and recognition that, that there are certain sections of the population that may not have access to the care that others do. And uh, again, you know, uh, one of our panelists here represents a particular demographic in his advocacy efforts. And there are other demographics that uh, either, uh, you know, fall within that the demographic in terms of the age, uh, maybe, but maybe not in economic criteria. And so when we look at uh, when we look at stratifying the populations, I think it's important that we build solutions that are inclusive. And the solution, it, just, it doesn't mean, you know, it, it, even though it could be the same app, it's not necessarily a one size fits all because if you're, uh, you know, trying to target a rural audience with the same kind of app, you need to architect it in a certain way. If you're targeting, targeting an inner city audience, it's got to be done in a certain way. There are issues related to bandwidth deserts and uh, 
and the access to smart devices and so on. And the good news again, I think is that the federal government has uh, has taken note of some of that and there's been some uh, targeted funding for innovative solutions that address these digital divides. But unless we do that, I think uh, we, you know, it, it's gonna be a hollow victory at the end of the day, because if it's not inclusive, then it hasn't served its purpose. And I wonder what, what you think of that, given that, you know, for social determinants of health, oftentimes the populations to be reached are the ones that are, that might be least likely to have had access in the past. Yeah. What we have seen uh, with, through our work with our clients is that, uh, again, you know, every health system serves its own demographic, uh, its own population. And we work with a wide range. We work with, you know, big, uh, big city hospitals. We work with big city hospitals that serve upper income communities. We work with big city hospitals that serve lower income communities. Uh, we work with uh, hospitals that are working in predominantly rural areas. We work with uh, hospitals that are working in areas where even if, uh, uh, you know, e even if you have all the technology enablement, you're geographically bound. Maybe you're in the middle of the mountains, right? Or something like that. So I think everyone's customizing their programs, maybe taking a common platform, but they're customizing their programs and their solutions to make sure it reaches the most, uh, most in need. And it also reaches the maximum number of their patient populations so that everyone has access to it. There's also other things related to it, and, uh, you know, whether the caregivers themselves are adequately trained to walk their consumers and patients through the choices and the options available and help them set it up and so on. But that is certainly a recognition that it is not a one size fits all. And so whether it is a telehealth solution, a virtual console solution, whether it is some remote monitoring solution, whether it's you know pulling the data back and then using it to drive interventions remotely, it's not a one size fits all. And that's really... That's where the excitement and the challenge is. And I think that's also where the opportunity is. Yeah. Dan, any additional thoughts? Dan? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's, we talked about data and, right. and where we can use help from the federal and state levels, right? Clear, consistent guidance. Um, that, that would be ideal, right? That we can help inform as well in the right way, right? Through, through consensus. I think the biggest one is around uh, the econo economic incentives um, to actually do do the right thing. So I think where we are today is a pivotal time in this country. Just uh, everything that has happened from um, the uh, shining lights on inequities um, and inequitable access to services, talking about vulnerable populations during you know the biggest pandemic we've had in, in, in obviously a long time. Uh, all of that is shedding light in in the direction that we need to take to solve it. And I think what what has what has really come to the forefront is the lack of actually infrastructure, like public health infrastructure, infrastructure across silos that actually serve people's needs. Right. You turn on the news today and it's still about people getting evicted from their homes, unemployment rates and mental health issues and the vaccine. Right. That's what we talk about all day. Many of those things are social determinants and social needs, right? It's not yep. about the medical services anymore. So really where the market's going, and, and I think there are good strides, is that at the state level with guidance, also at the federal level, is payment structures. And I think that's going to change economic incentives that will continue to bring different players to the table to build something that is person-centric, not medical-centric, not me, my population-centric, but 
person-centric, right? That allows everyone to, to collaborate around that. Are we all, all all the way there? No, it's not all 50 states, but there's 30 states that are mandating, you know, the, this type of work around not just how do I give a patient a piece of paper around a service that they may need, but actually I have to actually report back that I helped them get a service, which requires this new type of connectivity. And now there's new payment structures around how do we how do we actually reimburse these services that, that are improving health. So it's going in the right direction, um, but definitely economic alignment is for sure a big push that will change the market. Yeah, agree. Yael, how about, oh, there you, I was going to say you can be wizard behind the curtain, but there you are. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, I think uh, there's a lot of great points that were mentioned. I mean, specifically, you know, looking at this from uh, obviously the digital consumers and, and sort of the next step and what we want to focus on. Um, one thing that I haven't brought up before is there's also so much problem in terms of bureaucracy and existing legislation. There's a lot of rent seeking. Uh, I've been a part of many different meetings of uh, you know, legislators, of uh, advocates, patient advocates, different uh, healthcare organizations. And a lot of the debate is mostly around funding for Medicare, for uh, Medicaid. And there's not as much focus on sort of the innovative solutions that entrepreneurs are providing. And I, I think that's where it's, it is important, and these are important social contributions that we've thought of in our society, and uh, obviously we dedicate good uh, percentages of it in our, our paychecks uh, every couple of weeks to that, uh, but I do think we have to think about what are those innovative solutions? Are we going to be able to bring them to the fore, or are we also just sort of thinking about our 1960s uh, healthcare model when we in 2021. And there is so much change. There is so many other tools that people have available at their fingertips. I think that that's also a very important consideration. I, I would say that that's uh, actually at the, at the heart of anything to do with healthcare. You know, it's all about following the money. The, the, the good news is that there is a conscious effort on the part of healthcare organizations to move towards more of a capitated model where you are taking risk and potentially keeping the upsides. And uh, health systems that are, you know, as befitting the topic of today's panel discussion, health systems and healthcare organizations that are effectively using data to manage their risks are the ones who are gonna come out in front. And there is definitely upside available for them. Now, we all know that this current fee-for-service model that is driving the vast majority of the healthcare system today it's a drive to the bottom. And you know, the, the reimbursements are not gonna get any better. If anything, they're gonna get tighter. And so in some ways, we are in the middle of this. We are in the tunnel. I don't know whether the beginning of the tunnel or somewhere in the middle of the tunnel, but we are in the tunnel of a transition from a predominantly fee for you know, service model to a predominantly capitated risk-based model. And when we do get to that model, and we are behind our own stated targets to get to the risk-based models uh, you know, for Medicare and so on, but uh, the wheels are in motion. And I, I'm very optimistic that we will get to a point where uh, every health system in the country is gonna have some percentage of its top line accounted for by some kind of a risk-based model. And then over time, as they get to learn how to manage the risk better and better, these conversations about, you know, the rent seeking and all the, you know, reimbursements and so on may shift to something else. And I'm hopeful that that is going to happen. 
to add to your point, Patty, if I may, uh, one thing that I've become an evangelist for, uh, just because I'm myself a patient and I love it, is direct primary care. It's a subscription model with a doctor. I pay X amount per month. I'm able to see him whenever. He's able to keep down his cost of bureaucracy. Uh, he basically only has one nurse that he works with, one person at the front. He doesn't deal with any insurance things. Everything is just in that subscription. And this kind of model, you know, seeing how it works, and it doesn't just work for younger, healthy people. There's a lot of older people who are there, a lot of people who are uh, basically have reached the kind of Medicare age, but find this subscription model just a lot better. They get more time with the doctor. Things are a lot more clear. They don't have to deal with reimbursements. I think that's something that's going to be really interesting to see as well, is if people can go to that. It's almost as if every time we innovate, we're always kind of going backwards to how it used to be with the house doctor and, you know, everyone paid uh, X amount for the house doctor to come by every single month, uh, you know, but whether it be concierge medicine at the very high end of the income scale or something like direct primary care, which can be 30 or $50 a month, uh, that also could provide something. And yeah. right now the, the laws are set up to disincentivize that. And I think that's that's been a lot a lot of the policy issues uh, kind of underneath the covers. Well, as as is almost always the case when we get we really get going and we're we're out of time. Um, so I just want to I want to thank my panelists, Yael, Patty, Dan, um, for such a really great interactive panel that uh, touched on these issues. I think in a really good way. But obviously, we there we probably could have gone on for quite some time. So. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you all very much. And I, and I hope that everyone enjoyed this. Thank you. Dan. Thank you again. Thanks for having me.